<laughs> you should have stayed on the water. <laughs> he died? And this is supposed to be a kid's movie! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 151 and 152, which begin with Deacon demonstrating how good he is with kids and end with foreshadowing to the 2006 romantic comedy Failure to Launch. Our special guest this week is VFX artist Jamie Going. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I've been listening to your podcast since, I guess it was last year is when it was released, right? It's been going for a while now. <laughs> I love it. I listen to it on my evening walks around the neighborhood. Great. You actually contacted us fairly early on in production. You are a self-professed Waterworld superfan. So where did this all start? Did it start way back in 1995 when the movie came out? close. It was the year after. I never actually got to see this in the theater. I was 10 years old when it came out in the theater, and I remember it being there. I remember all the news stories about it being so expensive and everything, but for some reason, maybe I was just a little bit too young to be interested in seeing it in the theater, and I was more obsessed with watching Apollo 13 over and over and over in the theater. <laughs> but the year afterward, when it came out on video... I had no, you know, disinterest in seeing it. It just wasn't something that was on my radar. And my friend Kevin was like, you have to watch this. It's such a good movie. And he gave me a copy. And I remember he called me up when I was in the first five minutes of it. And he's like, are you watching it? Are you watching it? I said, yeah, he just drank his own pee. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so you ever see that show Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon? Mm -hmm. There's an episode where he finds his song. And the line is something like, sometimes you don't find the song, the song finds you. And that's what happened with this movie. I never sought it out. It just sort of like, it came to me at the perfect age. 11 years old was the perfect age to watch this movie before I was uber critical of storylines and everything. I could just enjoy it for what it was, a summer blockbuster. That was also the same year that my family got a swimming pool. So if I wasn't in the water playing, I was watching Waterworld. And then I would get all the toys and play with my toys in the water. And I just totally fell in love with it and became aware of the fact that everybody else hated it. And, <laughs> and I'm a very sympathetic person in general. So Waterworld felt like that kid on the playground who peed his pants once. And that's how everybody remembers him. Whereas if you took the time to get to know him, you would realize that yeah, he peed his pants once, but he has so many great qualities. So the people who hate on Waterworld so much, they conveniently forget that it's an Oscar-nominated film. Yeah. It was nominated for more Oscars than The Shining, The Searchers, one of John Ford's most iconic westerns, American Psycho, The Big Lebowski. It was nominated for more Oscars than all of those. And maybe that has something to say about the quality of the Academy Awards, which I <laughs> won't argue with that at all. But the point is... This is an excellent demonstration of the power of reputation and how hard it is to shake those reputations. I mean, the press sank this movie before it even had a chance. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to sit here and say it's Shakespeare. I won't even say that it's my favorite movie of all time. I won't say it's a legitimately great piece of contemporary American cinema, but it was just this fun summer blockbuster. And, you know, everybody kicks it as this box office bomb. But if you look it up, the list of money out and money in, Waterworld is nowhere to be found on that list. It's all movies like The Lone Ranger and John Carter and you know, all these movies that everybody forgot about, but everybody remembers Waterworld as being this big money sucker. And if you think about it as an intellectual property, it's probably made a fortune considering how many universal theme parks have it as their stunt show centerpiece. Absolutely. Beijing right now they're building another Universal Studios over there with different themed areas. So you've got like Transformers and Harry Potter mm -hmm. and Waterworld. So they not only have the stunt show, they've expanded it out to like a Waterworld themed restaurant. This is 25 years, 26 years after the movie came out. Oh, that is spectacular. I, that makes me so happy. 
It makes me so happy. And I've been following the construction updates. Somebody takes, I don't know if they're like bootleg cell phone pictures <laughs> from behind the scenes, but they've been posting all these construction updates of like what the restaurant looks like and, and, and everything else in Universal too. So it's so cool to see that after this many years, it's still starting new chapters. I've just always been obsessed with this movie and like reading more about it and even writing to people who were involved in making it and sharing stories with them, or listening to their stories because I was never a part of it. I was just a kid when it came out. Last year, I was talking to a family member about this who had no idea that I was this into this movie. <laughs> and she said, this is amazing. I had no idea you were this obsessed. You should write a book or start a blog or something. And I said, no way. Nobody will ever listen to that. Nobody will care. I'm the only person in the world who would actually care about this movie. And then like the next week is when I found the Atoll channel that Alex runs. And I wrote to him and then I found you guys through that. So these are Alex's words. He said there's a water world renaissance going on right now. <laughs> Between the work that you guys are doing, the work that he's doing, whatever I'm contributing behind the scenes by just talking to people, it's just been so fun to see this movie come to the light of day again. I mean, I think you mentioned it on one of your other episodes, how it's been 20, 25 years, so now it's retro. Mm -hmm. Now it's cool again. Yep. And I stand by my statement that if they had filmed this movie, put it on the shelf for 20 years, <laughs> 20, 25 years, and released it now, people would go ape over it. You know why? Because they did all this stuff for real. Mm -hmm. And now everything is CGI. And like when Fury Road came out, everybody was saying, oh, they did all those stunts for real. It's so cool to see a movie do things for real instead of CGI. And what did they do in this? They built a quarter mile circumference floating city mm -hmm. designed by Lockheed engineers. I mean, would they ever do that again? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned in the past the idea of them either remaking this movie or doing a sequel or maybe like doing a reimagining based on the original Raider script and how you could, in theory, do this movie with physical sets embellished with visual effects. And you're a visual effects artist, so you understand the ways that you can build on top of real things. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily have to drag a hundred or so people out to the middle of a bay off the coast of Hawaii to do this. You can do it in a parking lot because all of the scenes with the D's are just them on sets and miniatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And compositing and blue screening and stuff, that's come a long way since they were doing it back in, you know, 90, the beginning of 95 is when they were doing all the visual effects for this. And I'll say this about it. The effects in this movie are actually spectacularly good. And there are, through the reading that I've done about this, so many shots that I never would have guessed were visual effects. Mm -hmm. A lot of the seaplane flying around, that was a miniature seaplane in a lot of shots. Really? I never would have guessed that. It looked legitimately like a real plane. I mean, for a lot of it, it was the real plane, but things like where it's harpooned to the trimaran and spinning around, apparently a lot of that was a miniature plane. And I've seen pictures of it and they filmed it on a green screen. A lot of the work was just very well done, invisible effects. I read this morning, Kevin Costner was wearing flippers in some of those scenes, and they had to paint the flippers out. Mm -hmm. I never would have guessed that. Yeah. I'm glad that I'm in here for this couple of minutes, because by framing through it, I was able to get some very interesting insight into the effects and the methodologies that they used that I had never thought of before. My mom is always asking me, like, can you even just sit and enjoy a movie? Or are you always picking <laughs> apart everything? About... And that's the fun of it for me. I mean, this is my craft. This is what I do for a living. And this is one of the movies that got me into it. So by sort of framing through and scrutinizing it, I'm not in any way trying to say like, oh, boy, look at how crappy this is. Because I didn't even know that a lot of these were in there. So to get back to your other point about making this today, I had read somewhere that they we're considering making this into a sci-fi channel show mm -hmm. the way that like Stargate was. Oh man, that would have been cool. I don't know how they would have done it and I still hope they do it someday, but the further along we get with technology, the easier it is going to be to make these type of shows. Like if sci-fi gets their hands on the kind of unreal based rear projection technology that Disney is playing around with, with the Mandalorian, think of all the things that they could do. Yeah, that Mandalorian technology is a game changer for real, because anytime you shoot something against 
a blue or a green screen, you're not getting the reflections of whatever that environment should be. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you've got that wraparound, you're getting all the correct lighting, you're getting all the correct reflections, which for the Mandalorian, which is a very big deal because his suit was all reflective. I mean, it wouldn't be that big of a deal in Waterworld because everything's all rusty. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. Technology like that would make something like this a lot easier than building a quarter mile circumference floating city and dragging it out into the middle of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to think that like we can move away from these cost prohibitive and super complicated real effects and we can just build them out of nothing but then have them be so photorealistic. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. And there was this whole period of effects were coming into popularity around like the mid 90s, CGI effects around Mm -hmm. the mid 90s. And then it's sort of like went up on this crazy ramp of let's do it just because we can, not because we should. And and there was a long period in there where things were CGI that probably shouldn't have been. And that's why, you know, you watch movies from like the 80s and they look so much better when they were filming things with miniatures. But through different directors like Chris Nolan prefers to shoot with miniatures and that's why Interstellar looked so amazing. First Man with Ryan Gosling all the Gemini death roll stuff, that was all miniatures. Again, with rear screen projections to get all the lighting and everything, right, is my understanding of how they did it. But just picking the right methodologies and using CGI to sort of enhance them to the proper degree is the way to do it. And we're finally reaching that point where things are appropriate in visual effects. Right. There's a time and a place for all of these different methods. They are all useful in their own way. Mm -hmm. And the real skill is knowing when to use what. Absolutely. As we go through the minutes, I'll be able to point out some of those things that I discovered by framing through and scrutinizing it. And and again, it's not to say like what they did a terrible job. It's just, oh, that's really interesting. This must have been how they did it because of what I'm seeing. And that makes it an even richer experience for me and hopefully for all of you too. Getting into the clip that we're watching today, we start off With the deacon, he has Enola slung over his shoulder, and he is carrying her, kicking and screaming. The way that the deacon is able to so quickly get his hands on Enola is different from the way it's in the book. Enola in the book is a bit smarter. When the ship starts exploding, she books it out of there. She tries to escape, and the deacon has to spend some time before he can catch up to her. Enola, too, had been doing her best to find her way through the maze of dark, smoky corridors when she'd turned a corner and walked smack into the open arms of the deacon himself. Now the smoker chieftain was dragging her, taking her back onto the bridge of the ship. See that, he said, pointing to a plane on the deck, where his smokers were running around in utter panic? Jumping ship, dodging fires? That's your salvation. Your ship is blowing up, Enola said. Was that your big vision? He knelt beside her, slipped an arm around her, His breath was terrible from smokesticks. Got me a new vision, darling. A pilgrimage for two. Me, you, and a bungalow in dry land. (sighs) I'm going to stop there because the rest of that section really alters the way you look at the deacon. Because what he suggests in the following paragraphs are that he is going to take Enola in the plane to dry land and they are going to start their own little society together. Okay, ew. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's going to groom her. I am so glad they did not include that part in the movie. I'm not quite sure what Max Allen Collins was trying to do by adding that detail. So you don't think that was part of the original script? I certainly hope not. (laughs) Yeah. That's whack. Because we love the Deacon. He's a lot of fun, and he's fun to not like. He's a great villain. It's great to love him for being greedy and egotistical and whatnot. You don't want to think of him as a creeper. Exactly. Right. (laughs) There are some sins that are okay socially for us to be entertained by, to appreciate. And then there are sins that are not. So let's stay in category A. Mm -hmm. You can respect George Clooney for wanting to rob a casino in Ocean's Eleven. You can get behind somebody doing something bad if their intentions are somehow good, but their way of doing it is distorted. But have you ever seen a movie where something like what was suggested in the book is tried to be passed off as okay? Yeah. I don't think I have. (laughs) You've got Lolita, which is 
That's no. messed up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a messed up story, and they tried so many times to make it into a movie. Right. The way they paint it in that story is that you've got your narrator, and he thinks everything is fine. When everybody on the outside is looking at it and be like, oh, no, no, that's not fine at all. I'm glad that we don't have that in the movie. Me too. <laughs> yes. Something in this clip that I really love about the Deacon is after he grabs Nola, he's making his way down stairs and his cloak gets caught <laughs> on the railing. Do you think that was planned? No, oh. I think that is completely real and I love it so much. Yeah, he went with it. I love also what it says metaphorically about this robe, which is ceremonial. He just put it on a few minutes ago in the movie. Never before had we seen him wearing something so ornate and cumbersome. So I enjoy the metaphor of this. He's putting on this image for the people, but ultimately it gets in the way of his own salvation. Mm, right. What do you think that cloak was made out of, by the way? Or what, what was it intended to look like it had been made out of? Because it has all those holes in it. It almost looks like a rubber mat for a like an industrial kitchen or something. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's maybe bits of tire. Anything made out of rubber may not be, you know, structurally sound anymore, but it still is there. Yeah. But you can flaunt it. It looks like something you'd find on the floor of a kitchen, though. Yeah. An anti-slip mat. Yeah. I'm sure there is some sort of thing you could get into where the coat represents the responsibility of his office, and here he is trying to flee... And it's trying to hold him back, saying, no, you have to stay with the ship. You're the captain. Go down with the ship. And he's fighting, saying, no. The captain is the last person off the ship. Supposed to be. And that concept never even crosses his mind of the <laughs> captain goes down with the ship. That detail about leadership and captainship looks like it might not have lasted. He doesn't even know about that concept of going down with the ship in the captain's rightful place. Right. right. You never hear talk about that when you're watching golf tournaments. <laughs> you never have the commentators be like, and he's going for the putt on the ninth hole green. It's like they say, a captain always goes down with his ship. And <laughs> his first duty is to his men. Like, you don't hear that. Maybe you should. I don't know. I don't watch golf. <laughs> I have a question. Where's Jack Black in all of this, and why isn't he trying to escape since... He actually, uh-oh, are you getting your book out? I am glad you asked, Jamie, <laughs> because the book outlines exactly where Jack Black is during all of this, and you're probably not going to like it. As I mentioned earlier, in the book, Enola ran away when the explosion started, and the deacon had to chase after her. So we're catching up with the deacon as he's trying to find Enola. The deacon was fleeing down a corridor, the floor beneath him shaking. He could hear distant explosions, but each one seemed closer. His whole ship was shuddering with repeated blasts. He almost bumped into his faithful pilot, his eyes wild, his battered pilot's cap on crooked, his breath heaving. The deacon caught him by the arm. Now where are you off to? Deacon, this tub is exploding. We gotta get out of here. We? I take it you're issuing an invitation? The pilot nodded frantically. There's room for two. The deacon nodded, said, and only two and withdrew a pistol from under his flowing robes and shot the pilot point-blank. An explosion below seemed to echo the gunshot as the pilot dropped, open-eyed, open-mouthed, to the metal floor. The deacon kicked the corpse aside and moved on. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Yikes! It's way more cruel in the book than is translated to the screen. Yeah. That would have been an interesting addition. I know, right? And it would have fit in perfectly right about here, even if he already had Enola captured and was heading down to the plane anyways. If he had run into Jack Black, they had that quick conversation, and he shot him, that would have been an interesting addition. Not a necessary one. Right. But a good excuse to get Jack Black on the screen again. Yeah. He just sort of, like, disappeared. Yeah. I mean, you would think he would want to be right there with his seaplane. You could imagine him sitting in the pilot seat, the plane spinning up, getting ready to go, just waiting for the Deacon to arrive. Deacon gets there, pulls out his gun, shoots Jack Black. Jack Black falls out the driver's side, and Deacon just gets right up in that seat. Right, and yeah. he still gets to say the line to Winola, you don't know how to fly the plane, but it's a good thing I do. Yep. 
<laughs> so we'd still get to use that line. Do you think he actually does? No, he doesn't know how to fly it. It's explained in the book that he is one of two people on the boat that know how to fly the plane, which is incredibly convenient. That's interesting. Not to jump too far ahead, because we will get there, but he obviously doesn't know what he's doing <laughs> in the movie. He seems to be pressing buttons at random. Yeah. We're going to catch up with the Mariner. He is rounding a corner and heading up towards the bridge. I love the shot of him in the stairwell leading up to the bridge, because there is a lovely bit of Star Trek acting. He throws himself against one wall and throws himself against the other one. It I thought about that while I was watching this. Like, it looks like the entire thousand foot long oil tanker just listed to the side by 45 degrees mm -hmm. <laughs> as if it was made out of cardboard or something. <laughs> I mean, I know that there's a lot of explosions going on and eh, this seemed a little, little bit much, but nice done, Kevin Costner. Yeah. When we're outside and we can actually see the ship more or less as a whole, it's barely moving. It's mm -hmm. not rocking back and forth. That's the plus side of these gigantic boats is that it takes a lot to shift them in the water. Mm -hmm. However much or little rocking there is happening on this ship, once we cut outside to where the Deacon is running up to the plane, as we mentioned before, a great opportunity where he could have dispatched with the pilot. But the flames that are rocketing up from the deck of this ship are incredible because it's as if there are flamethrowers below the deck sending these huge plumes of fire up from below. It's a bit crazy, but no less impressive. Yeah, this was the movie that made me wonder, what would happen if you actually threw a road flare into an oil tanker? <laughs> would it? <laughs> I imagine that there are areas that are under higher pressure, but would something like crude oil be able to explode with that much force? I know that when they filmed this, they filmed all of the live action stuff in L.A., it was called Commerce City, I think. They had built a 600-foot-long section with forced perspective, so the stern and the bow were a little bit smaller, so that if you were filming it from the end, it would look like it was actually a 1,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And because they filmed it close to L.A., there were a lot of restrictions on black smoke. Like, they couldn't use it. So all the flames that they had on set were done using propane, which would just be a very clean flame that wouldn't emit any smoke. And then all the smoke effects were added in later. Those were all filmed out in the Mojave Desert where they filmed the miniature Ds. But yeah, that, that is a pretty cool shot where you got those three pillars of brilliant flame and then the camera shakes. And as we move up to a higher vantage point with the Mariner finally getting out onto that platform outside the bridge, I imagine that most of the shot that we're looking at here with him in front of the microphone is all composite. Yeah, and this is actually an interesting shot that I wanted to talk about, something that I noticed. If you kind of frame through it, you can see that that curtain of beads is, instead of being like independent strands of beads, it looks like they've grouped about six or seven of the strands together with tape or something, so that it's, instead of a whole bunch of individual strands, it's just a couple of ribbons. And... I thought maybe it was styled that way, but then I looked at an earlier scene in the movie where you can see Enola sitting inside that room, and they have another section of curtain that are the individual strands. So I don't know this for sure because I never read it anywhere, but looking at this, I can only assume that they had the forethought before they filmed this to assemble those together in smaller sections for the purposes of creating a nice, good, clean mat because there was a blue screen where he runs out onto the balcony there. Sometimes the blue screens work, sometimes they don't work out so well, and you have to actually hand trace them, and that's called rotoscoping. I know that around the physical deck that they built, they had blue, they look like tarps, like from Home Depot, <laughs> that they were hoping to use as something that they could color key off of. But because it was such a rainy season, unseasonably rainy, they became a muddy mess, and they weren't able to actually color key off of it. They actually did still have to trace around the edges. And I'm wondering if they had to do the same thing with these like ribbon shapes of the beads hanging in the doorway. And as you frame through it, you can kind of like even see some of the background through it that was there on the actual set <laughs> and not the water behind it. I'm not trying to nitpick it, but... It's interesting that they knew ahead of time this is going to be a problem if we have to like rotoscope every single individual strand of pearls as they're like flying through the air. 
And then I don't know if you guys had talked yet about the CGI water. So I mentioned in an earlier episode that Waterworld did it and they did it well enough that it bolstered other people in the future to do it. It was a big deal. And they had filmed some plates of real water and then for some reason decided to go with CGI water as well. But the water, it's a cool story because the algorithms and stuff that they had written to simulate the water, it didn't come from a visual effects studio. It actually came from like an engineering firm called Arete, I think is how it's pronounced, or Arete, Arete. <laughs> they were doing more like governmental work, mm -hmm. ocean engineering stuff. But it was realized that they could take that software and then light it in a certain way and then use it for the sake of visual effects. And that's what they did for this. And yeah, for 1995, that looks really good. I'm sure back in 1995, you didn't have anywhere near as sophisticated as the programs that you're able to use in the industry today. Yeah, now it's like you click two buttons. Ah, make ocean. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not joking when I say that, but uh, in some programs. Doing visual effects for a movie in the 90s was prohibitively expensive. I think it was like $35,000 a shot on average. I mean, some were obviously more complicated than others, like the whale fin popping out. I mean, who knows how long it took to do that. And especially with a shot like this, there's a lot of elements going on. You've got the foreground element, and then you've got the CGI water. I don't know if the sky is CGI as well, but then you've got all of those smoke elements that had to be added on and put behind Kevin Costner and all of his blonde hair that's floating around. <laughs> Again, if you kind of frame through it, you can see some kind of fuzzy matte lines, which it wouldn't really fly nowadays, but back then, you know, it, it was okay. And and honestly, when you're watching it in motion, it's hard to tell anyway. Mm. So they did a really great job with all these effects. This was a perfect example of, I mean, yeah, it's CGI water, but they combined a lot of photographic things together to produce something that looks like it was filmed out of a camera. So then the shot after that, where he runs out on the balcony, you can probably notice that the quality of it looks different. The flames have these like purple fringes on them and it almost looks like it was filmed on video. Yeah. This is one of a couple of shots in this section of two minutes that were not in the theatrical cut. These were in the TV version that were ultimately put into the Ulysses cut. And I don't know if these were effects that were done temporarily back when they actually made the movie or if they were done for the TV version. In either case, they just didn't have the budget to do them to the same caliber that the other shots were. So that's why when you look at it, it you notice that it looks a little bit weird and different. And I understand why they cut this sequence out, because it doesn't really add much. He's just running around looking. You know? If you're looking at it carefully, you can actually see there's a bit of a black outline around the edge of the bridge house and the speaker that's attached to the corner there. And it just looks a little cartoony. Black outlines were a common thing with the older blue screen stuff. Like you go back and look at Empire Strikes Back and those movies and for as amazing as of a, a job as they did, any old blue screens, they typically have that little bit of black fringe around it. Those are the kinds of things that have gone away when computers took over because it used to all be done with optical printing machines. Mm -hmm. I love watching those old how-to videos where they say, okay, well, here's the plate of the ship and here's the plate of the background and we just go in and we cut out that and we layer it together and i'm yeah. like oh geez <laughs> it's so much work <laughs> yeah the uh technology of how they used to do it analog is really magical stuff i mean like filming it with a yellow filter so that they get a black and white image against a blue screen it's like how did they ever figure out how to do this stuff <laughs> now it's all in a computer so it's easy peasy right mm-hmm the Mariner, here at the top of the bridge, he's obviously upset that he has not found Enola because this is the last place he saw her. We stumble upon arguably one of my least favorite parts of this movie because it just disappoints me so much. The Nord comes through the beaded curtain, pointing a gun at the Mariner, says, Oh, you should have stayed on the water, and the Nord pulls the trigger, the gun clicks, and... Suddenly, the Nord realizes that he is at the mercy of the Mariner, who turns on him, points his shotgun, blows him away, and that's the last thing we see of the Nord. Their final confrontation is not too much different in the book. He was just about to aim the weapon down towards the deck when he heard a voice behind him. You should have bought me that drink, dirt man. 
The mariner turned, and there he was, the Nord, long blonde hair dripping with blood, his face streaked scarlet and smudged with soot, his eyes glittering maniacally, his grin as self-satisfied as it was deranged. And in the hand of one outstretched and amazingly steady arm was a pistol. In half an eye blink, the mariner swung the huge harpoon gun around and discharged a weapon that could have easily slain a whalefin. And yet the Nord's gun blasted away, firing again and again. But it was only the reflexive action, the convulsive twitching of a hand no longer in communication with a dead man's brain. The harpoon had slammed through the Nord's forearm, on through his chest, pinning him to the bulkhead like a wriggling fly with a mean child's pin through it. Nothing's free in Waterworld, the Mariner advised the wide-eyed dead man, as he placed a foot on the Nord's chest for leverage and yanked the harpoon free. Okay, to start with, the Nord's snarky line that he gets to say is so much better in the book. You should have bought me that water. Because it directly references their introduction. It's Mm -hmm. so much better. They do use that line when the smokers have taken over the trimaran. Oh, that's true. So I appreciate its inclusion in the movie somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, oh, you should have stayed on the water. I mean, yeah, I guess that works as a line. Yeah, it's kind of a letdown. The other line was much better and it would have been better placed here. Yeah. But what mostly disappoints me about this interaction, and I mentioned this in past episodes, is that the Nord represents to me the heavy, the second in command, the guy that is physically on par with the Mariner. He is the Clarence Boddicker to the Deacon's Dick Jones. And I wanted so much for the Mariner and the Nord to have a knockdown, drag out fight where the two of them battle. Not just a situation where the Mariner, oh, he swings over the car and he causes the Nord to crash or something like that. I wanted something more. And the more I thought about it, the more I figured... If you wanted to include a fight, you could have the Mariner, when he comes across the deck and Deacon sees him, you know, why aren't you rowing? You can have the Deacon send the Nord down to the deck, and then the two of them can fight, because there's no time constraint at this point. The Mariner hadn't dropped the flare yet, and so you could have the two of them punching, kicking, shooting, using their environment, all this stuff, and as soon as the Mariner defeats the Nord, he can turn to Deacon and be like, hey, I've beaten your guy give me what I want. And then the deacon can be like, no, I'm not giving her up and drop the flare, go on as normal. But to do the Nord dirty like this really cuts me. I wanted so much more for him. Am I alone in this? No, I agree. I think having him lose solely because his gun jammed is, yeah, a little disappointing, a little cheap for him. At least in the book, it's a pretty simple demise. It's no knockdown, drag out fight, but at least his gun worked. This was a moment between two functional people with functional weapons, and the better man won out. The better man was faster, and therefore the Nord died. In the movie, if the Nord's gun hadn't jammed, the Mariner would be dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a gun jam is a coincidence. And in screenwriting, you can have coincidences get characters into trouble, but you can't rely on coincidences to get them out of trouble. That's cheating. It's a surprisingly common thing, though, to see somebody's gun jam right at a moment like this. There are so (laughs) many movies that do this. It's not like this is the only one. But yeah, it's. I agree. To have him come back and then it's just like, oh, my gun doesn't work. And then that's it. He's gone. Yeah, I'm with you. Hashtag justice for Nord. I don't don't (laughs) think that's going to catch on. I don't think so. Yeah. You can try, though. Maybe he survives and comes back in the sequel. Ooh, it would be a miracle. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. (laughs) (laughs) What, you couldn't survive a shotgun shell to the chest at point blank? Shotgun blast, car crash, survive drowning as the ship goes down. He's Nordic. He's built to last. Exactly. His bloodline comes from the fjords. Of the frozen north. He's built from strong stuff. (laughs) So the deacon, meanwhile, is down in the plane. And as we mentioned before, he seems to be pulling knobs and pressing buttons in what appears to be a random manner. But according to the book, he knows what he's doing. Okay. I think we kind of have to assume that because he gets the plane moving 
in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Like, it's going to work for him. So I guess we just kind of have to trust that he at least knows how to get it up in the air. Maybe it's one of those things where, like, he's seen the seaplane pilot do it enough times and he's never done it himself. So in his head, he knows how to do it. And he can, you know, follow the recipe of getting the engine started. But really, he's no pilot. I kind of like that about it. Yeah. I imagine he would be quicker and more efficient if he didn't have one hand pressed over a Nola to hold her in place. It's very reminiscent of a parent trying to hold a child when they have to slam on the brakes really fast. (laughs) Enola is nothing if not an unruly child because she (laughs) leans her head down and chomps down onto his arm. Yeah. (laughs) Which, hey, good for her. Yeah, in the world of a child where you are weaker than most people around you, and especially when people want to hurt you, she's weaker than everybody else in this movie. What does she have that can hurt other people? She doesn't have any weapons on her. She doesn't have the strength. She has her ability to annoy people, which she certainly annoyed me in this minute. Her only lines were, put me down, put me down, put me down. (laughs) Just over and over and over again. (laughs) But yeah, biting him is kind of all she has. Mm. She could poke him in the eyes, but he's missing one, so that's only (laughs) half as effective. I'm a little surprised she didn't try and bite that finger he was holding out to point into her face. He's trying to do a Harrison Ford maneuver to stun her into inactivity with a point, but she could have reached up and just nipped at his fingertip a little bit. Although, you don't know where that finger's been. It's probably not a good idea to put it in your mouth. (laughs) I don't think... That they are that picky in this world about what they put in their mouths. I mean, they drink their own piss. It's a valid point. <laughs> I will not argue with you there. Meanwhile, up on the deck, the Mariner has realized that the place where he was several minutes ago is actually the place where he wants to be now. So he has to figure out a way to get down there quickly. And lucky for him, the case that held the flare guns that the doctor and the ledger guy opened earlier in the movie also happens to hold this harpoon gun. And so the Mariner pulls it out. And looking at this thing, it reminds me of the end of Deep Blue Sea, because I'm pretty sure a harpoon gun very similar to this features in that movie as well. I don't remember specifically, but that seems very likely. But there are plenty of cans of smeat in the in the harpoon box, too. <laughs> That's convenient. Mm-hmm. I recently found when I was digging through eBay for Waterworld props that they had a mold used to make the meat cans. Not the actual meat can, just the mold used to make the meat can. That is brilliant. <laughs> a lot of the meat can is the label. So mm-hmm. without the label, it's really not much more substantial than like a rectangular cube with a pop top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that is one uh, Waterworld artifact I would love to get my hands on is a real can of meat. And did you know how, like, how many productions they've used this meat cans in after Waterworld? I do not. No. A startling number of them that I, I was never really aware of uh, until recently. But like, I guess I've never seen The Walking Dead, but apparently in The Walking Dead, it's a prominent thing. I guess they had enough of them laying around that they kept them, <laughs> which is a similar thing to you know what they do on other productions like Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. All of those uniforms, like the helmets and everything, I've seen cheap sci-fi channel movies. And I'm like, wait a minute, those are the Starship Troopers uniforms. What are they doing with those? So if they have to produce a lot of something, they keep them around. And in this case, it was cans of smeat. (laughs) The Mariner is in an interesting situation. He's got a harpoon gun with a line attached to it, and his options are myriad. He could shoot it at the plane and try and anchor it down. But what he does is he fires ahead of the plane, and the barb lands on a post that's down by the bow. And the Mariner very conveniently has a pallet covered in chains. And I love the way that it works here, where he's got the line attached to a pylon down on the deck. He threads it up through a hand railing, secures the gun to the pallet, and then pushes the pallet off the back of the ship so the whole thing goes taut. I really do appreciate his quick thinking. The situation is implausible, but that's okay. It's a movie. But I do like his quick thinking of he's got these steps laid out. And he doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen at the end of his zipline that he's created, but he at least got the couple of steps required to build a quick zipline, mm-hmm. and it worked. It kind of feels like an episode of MacGyver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's working with what he has. Yeah. Yep. 
He even has the mullet. (laughs) (laughs) And so the Mariner launches himself off of the bridge by this zip line that he's made with a hook that he found close by. And implausible as it may seem, the Mariner is able to zip line faster than a plane that is speeding up to take off. And I always thought this was such an oddball detail that he was able to slide so much faster than something powered by an engine. And I found an interesting detail in the book that I want to share with everybody. Sliding down the stretched line, streaking over the deck, the Mariner did his best to outpace the seaplane, its tails up, trying to take off. The deacon at the controls was cursing at the sight of the Mariner as the seaplane headed for the curved launch ramp, building speed, building speed, building speed. But then the plane began slowing down as if its wheels were caught in mud. The Mariner grinned as he coasted along his line. The scalding deck was melting the rubber of the plane tires. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Julia, you seemed a little stunned by that. That circumstance does remind me a little bit of what we just talked about a few minutes ago about coincidence solving your problems. And this is a little bit of that, except that it is grounded in some sort of reality. The deck would be getting hot. The tires, which are degraded rubber anyways, would be melting. That makes sense. So I'm kind of torn between how convenient and of course. (laughs) So in real life, you couldn't put a grappling hook on whatever rope that was and slide anywhere. But they had built a grappling hook that had, it was basically like a couple of pulleys. Mm-hmm. with bearings in them so that he could slide. And then just in case he was going too fast, because Kevin Costner actually did this stunt, they had supposedly built a little brake handle that he was in control of. So if he felt like, oh, I'm going too fast, I'm about to hit whatever's at the bottom, he could pull the brake. But you can still kind of see what was holding those wheels in place. But I know that they did a lot of paint work to paint out a lot of that physical structure so that it more or less looks like it's just a grappling hook and not like a whole stunt thing. And then I've seen some pretty cool behind the scenes pictures of that close up of his face as he's sliding down. And they had built this whole cable cam rig where he's doing the same thing. And there's just like a camera right in front of his face. Mm-hmm. And as I kind of like frame through this, I can just barely see some of the paint marks. Like sometimes there will be a plume of smoke behind that section of the grappling hook and then like the next frame it completely disappears but for the most part this was all done so seamlessly and this is such an iconic part of the movie like every time i saw it on tv or whatever it was always kevin costner riding down on the grappling hook i mean i have an american cinematographer here from 95 and that's the cover Mm -hmm. that is amazing that's the exact frame that i have frozen at right now you're right it's (laughs) iconic And what really seals the deal on that is the music. We bring in the Mariner's theme right here. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I get this theme stuck in my head and I just play it over and over. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And now that you bring up that they painted out the rig at the top of the hook as he's swinging in towards that post at the end of his run, the cable seems to be hovering just above the center of the hook, which seems a little bit odd in freeze frame. Right. (laughs) But for the actual shot, it's so quick. And the way they cut it so that he bounces off of the zip line and then suddenly has the hook in his hands once they close up on the cable on the ground, you don't sit there and say, hey, wait a second. Oh, yeah, that is the same grappling hook. But they never show him taking it off. Yep. Oh. There's a moment when the deacon is getting ready to take off. He's looking pretty good. And then the mariner's starting to slide past him. The deacon looks over at the mariner with this expression of, confused delight <laughs> like what the sam hill <laughs> right like he doesn't hate what he's seeing he's more amazed by it yeah like this guy should be playing on my team yeah <laughs> <laughs> that should be my number two not the nord he's mm-hmm. dead in the next shot here after he pulls up to lift the plane off but then the next shot where he's running towards the plane as it's taking off over him This is another one of those shots that was so well done that I never even stopped to think, is this an effect shot or how did they do this or whatever? Because they're not going to actually take a plane off over their main actor. Right. But it doesn't look CGI. It doesn't even look like a miniature as far as I can tell. It looks like they shot a plane taking off on a runway 
miraculously with a similar enough camera movement to match this handheld movement of him running towards it, which is not easy to do. And we're able to marry the two together. And the only reason why I was even able to like look at this and say, oh, those obviously weren't filmed in the same way, other than the fact that it's too dangerous, is because the shadow looks a little bit funky and soft as it's taking off. Mm. But this is one of those shots that's so well done. And I love how much the bridge is exploding in the background. There are so many layers to this. Right. The more you think of it, the more impressive it gets. Not only that, like you said, they were able to marry the movements of the camera so that they appear natural, but then you think, okay, you've got Kevin, he's cut in in the foreground, you've got the shot of the plane taking off, and then you've got all the fire and smoke effects in the background. There are so many cool things in this movie. Yeah, it's bananas, <laughs> and it goes by so fast, and it's so seamless that people don't really appreciate it because it's what's called an invisible effect. Mm -hmm. Something like the whale fin shark that comes out of the water, obviously... That's an, a visual effect because those things don't exist in real life. But there are so many effects that go unnoticed. And that's a good thing because you don't want the audience to know that you did anything there. You want it to be completely seamless. But at the same time, it's like people don't even know that you did anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. The next shot after this, there's a great portion of the behind the scenes feature that came on the Blu-ray. They could have just had a close up of the grappling hook hitting the pontoons. But they thought this would be so much cooler if you get the angle that you see in the movie. And the way that they did it is they had to get something called a Titan rig, which is this very, very heavy camera crane that I, I think was mounted on some kind of a truck. But the deck that they had built out of plywood for the Ds wasn't strong enough to sustain the weight of that. <clears throat> so for this one shot, they had to reinforce the deck with, like, I don't know how many more layers of plywood to be able to hold that amount of weight. And then they, put the camera on it and then put just the pontoon structure and had it drive down the deck and then had him jump up and nail it perfectly. And I was even starting to question if the grappling hook was CG, but I think that was a physical thing. And I'm so glad that they put in the effort for this shot, which is less than one second. I actually counted the frames mm -hmm. that go into this, but it makes it so much more interesting and dynamic than just a close-up of the grappling hook. By my count, it's only three quarters of a second. And how many days or whatever did it take right. <laughs> to reinforce the deck, set that whole thing up, choreograph it? And how many takes? That just goes back to my point about, I mean, yeah, the story had its problems, but there was so much effort into all these aspects of the craft that are fantastic. And this is another one of those shots that, because the whole scene flows so well, I never thought about it. But thinking about it now, how were they able to get a plane flying through the air on this deck? Mm-hmm in Commerce City. But for this shot, they went out to an actual runway. So this isn't the deck anymore that they used for the rest of the movie. They just sort of dressed it up and they put the bow of the ship out there and all the garbage down. And if you look closely at the ground, you can tell that that's tarmac. That's concrete. It's no longer that plywood painted to look like sheet metal. And they had a guy flying this plane with a cable attached to the pontoons. And they did a couple of flyovers to get like the camera movement right and everything. And then when it came time to it, they actually crashed a real plane <laughs> on the tarmac. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. And this is another one of those shots that goes by so fast. Mm -hmm. But, yep, they did it for real. This isn't CGI. It's a spectacular way to end the clip. Yes, it is. At the end of the day, Waterworlds is a fun movie, and this is a fun two minutes. Yeah, this is ex absolutely an example of why this movie is so great. Mm. Movies from the 90s were big action movies that were silly to a certain extent, but were like aware of their silliness. None of this would ever work, but it's just fun to watch. And the trends that I found in the last like 10 years or so is everything is so much more like gritty and realistic mm -hmm. that something like this, people would scoff and say, oh, that would never happen. But it was like in the 90s, you could get away with it to a certain extent and say, so what? It's just fun to watch on a Saturday afternoon at the movies. That's why the 90s was probably the best decade for just big summer blockbusters. Mm -hmm. Back when it didn't matter if it would be easier to teach astronauts how to drill than drillers how to astronaut. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> this is so much fun for me. I love that people are celebrating this movie now. I've tried to get a couple of art house theaters to show this. It would have been great last year because it was 25th anniversary, but with COVID, 
everything stopped. There's actually one down here called the Alamo Draft House, and I was in talks with them about potentially showing this, and they suggested the idea of what they do for Jaws when they show it. They go up to the lake, and they have this big inflatable screen, and everybody gets an inner tube, oh. and they sit in the inner tube with drinks. And they watch okay. Jaws on this inflatable screen and they have people like in scuba gear going around with a fake shark fin and like tugging on people's legs and stuff. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, That's it would have been perfect it. to have a water world showing of that. Maybe for the 30th anniversary. I'll have to wait another four years. Yeah. yeah. I hope that they do show this again in the theaters because I never got to see it in the theaters. And I always appreciate seeing actual 35 millimeter prints of movies because it's so organic and alive. Mm -hmm. I always make the effort to go out to the theater when they're showing those. So thanks again for having me on, guys. This has been a lot of fun for me. Absolutely. Now, Jamie, you know that it's always good when two drifters meet that something be exchanged. So for the benefit of our listeners, what would you recommend they go check out if they wanted to see some of your work or what are other things you could recommend? Uh, my work usually goes by pretty fast on the screen. It's not uncommon to spend like six months working on something that literally lasts three, four seconds. I've worked on movies since 2008, the bigger ones are, like, I worked on one of the Godzilla movies, the one with Brian Cranston in it, Goosebumps, another Jack Black movie. Mm -hmm. The first one that I worked on was called Surrogates with Bruce Willis. That was a fun show for me because it was my first movie. So you go to the movie theater and it's like, wow, my name is on the screen. And then after that, it's like, okay, I know what my name looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've worked on a bunch of Nicolas Cage movies and Jason Statham movies that are easy to be forgotten. These days, I do more CGI for museum exhibits and stuff, mm -hmm. science museums. And it's actually a ton of fun. And it's funny to think that more people will see that than a lot of these movies that I've worked on. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a lot of time working on a Nick Cage movie that it was in four theaters across the entire world, four oh theaters for about a week. And that was it. It disappeared. Like Nobody ever saw this thing that I spent all this effort on. <laughs> and I have an IMDb if anybody wanted to look it up. I'll get back into movies at some point. But for now... I'm kind of happy doing museum work and staying out of the realm of the boss man comes upstairs and says, all right, we're shutting down. Everybody leave. There's nothing we can do. That is a very common thing, unfortunately. There are just better ways to live than that. You know, yeah. I can do Absolutely. visual effects for any number of projects and just be happy with my work and not worry so much about going to the movie theater to see it. So I'm sure I'll get back into it, but I don't miss some of the nonsense that goes on, unfortunately. The magic of the movies is still there for me. Thank you, Jamie, once again for joining us. It has been spectacular having another super fan here on the podcast. As for us, come back next time. The Mariner will reunite with Enola. Helen will arrive to save the day in Gregor's airship. And Deacon will make a last-ditch effort to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 76. We'll see you next time.